Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas in personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Now, let me bring up our special teacher for today. I got to know this guy a couple of months back, and we've become really good friends. And I really enjoy being in his presence because he's one of the funniest guys I know. He's got this weird, sarcastic sense of humor, but he's also one of the most brilliant minds I know. I can hold up a camera to him and say, "Ben, dish out some wisdom," and then he will spew the most poetic science and philosophy and wisdom. On a topic, whether it's conscious parenting or biohacking, he's truly brilliant. But not only is he brilliant up here, Ben Greenfield is really unique. In 2008, he was voted America's Fitness Trainer of the Year. But he didn't just stop there. To most people, that itself is a big achievement. There is this race called the Spartan Race, right? It is one of the most difficult races in the world. For example, in one of the Spartan races, you go for 72 hours. In minus 30 degree weather, this race could kill people who are not prepared. Ben did nine of the hardest Spartan races in the world in one year, nine of them, and he is one of only three people in the world to pull that off. So this man has trained his body like a well-optimized machine. But what's good about him is that he is consciously competent. He can train you. To think of your body like a well-optimized machine, you can ask him a question about anything, from intermittent fasting to nootropics to biohacking, and he knows exactly the science, the math. He will cite the studies, all data-driven, and so he is going to blow your mind. And we're going to learn and go deep on the topic of health, of longevity, and on the science of biohacking with this remarkable man. But one of the most interesting things about Ben is. He's not just going to talk about biohacking, but this guy is weird. Last night we were at the Fourth of July party.、Oh, we had our hot dogs, we had our beer, we had our burgers. And by the way, Ben isn't one of those guys who will question every waiter. Does this contain gluten? See, he will have fun in the right occasion. I know how to eat sweet potato fries soaked in mayonnaise,、That、and you know how、like、to enjoy a burger.、Yeah. But then Ben would look down at the grass and he'd go, "Vision, you got to try that plant." And then he'd jump over the fence. He would pick up a leaf and stick it in my mouth. I felt like a goat, but it was actually delicious. It is true that wilderness grows up from the cracks of a sidewalk in a city, and people do things like mow their lawn and pick the dandelions out. When in fact, that is one of the most powerful liver tonics that you can make a smoothie from. Or last night, what I gave you was wild nettle, stinging nettle. It's one of the most protein-rich, nutrient-dense plants that you can get your hands on. And not only that, but what I gave you was the seed from the top of the nettle. You walk into a supplement store, and they'll charge you sixty bucks for a bottle of that to enhance your testosterone, guys. And you can find this stuff just sitting around in nature if you educate yourself. You know, there's a variety of different plant foraging books and plant foraging apps. And my boys and I, we use one called Flower Checker, where you can just take a picture of any plant, and within 24 hours, a team of live botanists on the other end identify the plant for you and tell you what you can eat and what's good. And you can build your own online herbarium. And when it comes to living a long time, you know, you talked about living an extra three to five years by listening to my podcast. Assuming you're not doing so, smoking a cigarette and driving around in your car with your butt planted in a chair for eight hours a day. One of the things I talk about is wild plant intake, legume intake. These are two of the five characteristics that you see prevalent amongst all blue zones. These areas where there are a higher 
the normal level of people who live a very long time. You also see absence of smoking. You see a large amount of time spent with family and love and in social relationships. You don't see people exercising much. You actually see very little exercise in a box, stepping into a CrossFit wad, beating yourself up with a barbell. Instead, people engage in low-level physical activity, usually in nature, all day long. So it's very interesting what we can learn from a lot of these populations. But yes, something as simple as learning how to identify wild plants that grow in nature around you, and rather than picking them up or mowing them to pieces, you eat them, put them in smoothies. That's fascinating. So in the Blue Zone study, so the Blue Zone is a concept that identifies areas in the world where people live an unusually long amount of time. For example, in Sardinia, you get 10x the number of people living to their hundreds as you do in the United States. So scientists study this. They label these areas Blue Zones. And Ben, you're saying... It's also where you find a lot of Smurfs, these Blue Zones. It's crazy. (laughs) And Ben, you're saying that it has little to do with exercise, but more to do with moderate activities such as walking and with eating healthy. Exactly. You know, when you look at the way that society is built, whether it's the doctor's office, whether it's, ironically, as it can seem, even a conference room, you know, full of chairs, cars, commuting, etc., we spend a lot of time sitting. And when you look at a lot of hunter-gatherer populations, when you look at a lot of what our ancestors did, when you look at a lot of these blue zones, people are working with their hands. They're gardening, they're hunting, they're gathering. And I understand that if you're a blogger or you're a podcast or you work in IT or you're a computer engineer, you're relegated in a very similar way as I am to being in front of a computer, in front of a screen much of the day. But you can hack your environment to simulate that of our ancestors or hunter-gatherer, the people we would find in the blue zones. Everything from standing workstations to special pads that you can stand on. You know, I in my own office have a little balance board that I stand on, a standing desk that I can crank up and down. I've got a walking treadmill. And when I travel, you ought to walk into my hotel room. I'll take a chair and stack it on top of a coffee table and put a couple of books on top of that and I'll stand while I'm working. I stop about every 25 minutes to do some form of exercise like 10 burpees or 100 jumping jacks or something that puts just a little bit of blood flow and also releases a very powerful molecule that's like Viagra for your whole body. It's Mm -hmm. called nitric oxide. And by doing those little things all throughout the day, my goal is this. By the end of the day, exercise to stay fit or to improve the way your body looks or anything like that should be an option, not a necessity, because you've packed your way into being physically active all day long. And even when I'm in a conference like this, and I won't take it as disrespect if any of you want to do this, you know, I'll stand up, I'll walk to the back, I'll stretch, I'll move, I'll stand, I'll shake. But the idea is that they've even shown that if you exercise at the beginning of the day, or at the end of the day, and you have a good exercise habit, you go to the gym. If you have your butt planted in a chair for eight hours a day in between those exercise sessions, you still have a high risk for cardiovascular disease and a host of other chronic diseases. So the trick is not to exercise per se in a structured traditional exercise format. It's to engage in low-level physical activity all day long. Wow, that's an intriguing idea. And I remember some studies done. There was a BBC documentary on this, and they installed a exercise bike in an office, and they found that people who would get on that exercise bike and engage in around a minute to four minutes of simple Tabata would show the same increase in their health, and I don't remember exactly how they were tracking their health, as people who were doing aerobics in the morning for half an hour or so. Exactly. Does anybody know what a Tabata is? 
This was developed by a Japanese researcher who found that a four-minute exercise session of 20 seconds, pretty hard, like smoke coming out your ears pretty hard, like you're running from a lion or in a sword fight at medieval days. You had 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off for four minutes. That's a total of eight rounds. Simulated 30 minutes of steady state exercise on a treadmill or on a bicycle or doing any other form of chronic cardio. It's called a Tabata set. But what's even more compelling than that There are two things that are the most important things to pay attention to if you want to live a long time and have the absence of disease and a high quality of health during that time. Number one is controlling what's called glycemic variability. Glycemic variability is how often your blood glucose goes up and down during the day. The other is to control your inflammation. Inflammation is something that builds up in the body when you eat a lot of vegetable oils, when you eat a lot of sugars, and even when you get exposed to high amounts of Wi-Fi, dirty electricity, poor air, unclean water, etc. The idea is if you can control glycemic variability and inflammation, you've taken care of the two lowest hanging fruits when it comes to your longevity. Now, this idea of the Tabata set that enhances your fitness in a very short period of time during a work day could be brought to the next level when we look at research on what it takes to actually control blood glucose prior to eating. Now, if you exercise before you eat, you'll actually enhance your body's ability to be able to maintain a normal blood glucose response after you eat. But do you know how long you would need to exercise, how long you need to do that explosive Tabata-type exercise in order to enhance your blood glucose response? I was shocked when I saw this study. 30 seconds. I mean, you can drop and do, whatever, 20 burpees and do that prior to a meal, and you'll vastly improve your glucose response to the meal. Furthermore, this is another research study in Japan. If you walk for about 15 minutes after a meal. You also do a fantastic job at supporting your glycemic variability. So the idea is, for me, when I know I'm gonna be eating a large meal or eating a lot of carbohydrates or having dinner or really having any meal at all, I'll just go out of my way to drop and do some push-ups. You know, I have a rule when I'm at a restaurant, I'll slip into the bathroom and do, I call them air squats. My friend Jeff, when he first saw me do this, I began to call them piss squats because I'd say I was gonna go to the bathroom to take a pee and I'd come back kind of red-faced because I'd done my 40 squats. But the idea is you do something that just gets the heart rate up a little bit before you go eat a big meal. Then you go on a quick walk afterwards. It's a very, very good way to control glycemic variability, as are those Tabata sets that you talked about. That and you you're saying do. these air squats take 30 seconds in a bathroom before that you start your meal. I have rules in my life, little rules to keep me active. Like I mentioned, I'll stop every 25 minutes during a work day and step away to you know swing a little kettlebell that I keep under my desk or hang from a pull-up bar near my office or do something that keeps me active. But a couple of other rules are, A, I'll do the 40 squats when I'm at a restaurant. So if any of you are at a restaurant with me this week and you see me disappear into the bathroom frequently, it's not because I have a small bladder, it's because I'm off doing my squats. On an airplane, I actually do 20 squats when I'm in an airplane. Anytime I stand up to go and use the restroom, I close the door and I do 20 squats. My rule is the butt has to kind of touch the back of the toilet seat when they're doing squats. And these little rules that you kind of sprinkle throughout your life coming full circle to this idea of trying to simulate what the blue zones do or what our ancestral hunter-gatherers did, you're basically just tricking your body into staying physically active all day long. And it comes down to habits, rituals, routines, and rules that you implement into your life to keep you active. And so in summary, it's not about doing 30 minutes of aerobic activity in the mornings. It's about spaced out activity for 30 seconds to a couple of minutes 
throughout the day. Exactly. And I'm not saying that, you know, if your own personal Mount Everest is to go to an Ironman triathlon or to go to a marathon or go to one of these Spartan races, I respect that. If that's something that you've set up for yourself as a goal, and if you have set that up as a goal, yeah, you got to go out on, you know, less frequently than most people would have us to believe the human body is actually innately very, very good at endurance. We can outrun, given food and water, any animal on the face of the planet. So you actually have to train for endurance far less than you think. We have a very large amount of stamina. But the idea is if you are an athlete or if you've signed up for something that's going to push your body, you got to do a little bit more than a Tabata set at the office and some piss squats on the airplane, right? But unless that's your goal or unless you're getting you know paid to be a professional athlete, there's not a need to go out and do these long exercise sessions that beat you up. And in fact, they've done research on how much exercise is too much, right? What would be the amount of exercise that would give you a law of diminishing return and increase what is called your risk for mortality, your risk of dying at an earlier age. Now for aerobic exercise, for this long steady state cardio, to avoid things like arterial stiffness and cardiovascular disease that can result from excessive exercise, if you do anything more than 90 minutes, which for a lot of people, that's a lot of exercise, but you'd be surprised at the number of people who are actually out, you know, doing a lunchtime run and an evening bike ride and getting out in the morning, or you exceed 60 minutes of intense exercise on a daily basis, you actually see a law of diminishing returns and it's a parabolic curve with an increased risk of mortality if you exercise too much. So it's very, very surprising what it comes down to when you're looking at physical activity. It's low-level physical activity spread throughout the day. It's brief sprints here and there, and it's lifting heavy stuff every once in a while. That's really interesting. Now, Vox, the online magazine, recently carried an article suggesting that there's this grand myth in our society that we need to exercise to lose weight. But what they said is that science now shows that 90% of our body shape has to do with what we eat and not the amount of exercise. What are your Mm -hmm. views on this? It has a great deal to do with that because that second component I talked about, inflammation, right? If you have low-level chronic inflammation all day long, and again, this can come down to the water that you drink, so it's more than just the food, the water that you drink, the amount of artificial light that you're exposed to, the number of times you're bombarding your body with Wi-Fi signals, the quality of the air that you breathe. I don't want to scare you into thinking that you're doomed by living in a post-industrial era to an early death. There are things you can do. I mean, you can have portable HEPA air filters that you carry with you if you live a nomadic lifestyle or a good air filter in your office. You can drink good, clean water or buy glass-bottled water when you travel. You can put your phone in airplane mode and hardwire into the router or into the wall in a hotel room when you're traveling. There are things that you can do to control this, but when it comes to food, the idea is that low-level inflammation can not only restrict the body's ability to kill fat cells or to convert fat cells into other tissue, but it can also downregulate a lot of the nerves and the abdomen and the stomach and a lot of these things that help us carry this tall, upright posture that allows us to look good. We see actual damage to those nerves when we're in a chronically inflamed state or when we're eating foods that leave us in a state of gut inflammation. So when it comes to inflammation, in my opinion, The biggest culprit that I see over and over again as a staple in people's diet, a lot of people think it's sugar, but it's not. And the reason for this is that, as we were just alluding to, you can metabolize sugar. Right, I can do 30 burpees before a meal and go for a walk after a meal and have a big batch of something sugary, like sweet potato fries or a few slices of bread or some dark chocolate or red wine or whatever with a meal. 
and it's burnt off, right? That glucose, if it's actually not in excess, and if you're moving, is really not as big of an issue as the oils in the meal that you're eating. Because your body can burn some of those oils, but it will also take the oils and the fats and the foods that you're eating, and it will use those to make your cell membranes. You are literally made up of not only what you eat, but what you eat ate. Right, what that big bear that you're going to eat at right. medieval days, whether that bear was fed on corn and grain and trash, or whether that bear ate blueberries and wild fish, right? Like that's going to influence what your cell membranes are comprised of. And when I traveled here to Tallinn, for example, I'll often stop at the little newsstand at the airport, stroll through and look for some healthy snacks to buy, right? And even when you go to the healthy food section at the airport stand or at Whole Foods or any of these other fancy, you know, so-called organic stores, and you look at the ingredient label, more often than not, you're going to see, in addition to organic agave syrup and cane sugar, and again, I'm not as much of being not a fan of those as I am of this next ingredient, you'll see canola oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, peanut oil, any number of different vegetable oils that are used to coat healthy foods, that basically bastardize a healthy food and turn it into something that damages your cell membranes. So anytime I'm evaluating whether or not a food is going to cause that type of inflammation that's referred to in the Vox article as being something that would disrupt my physiology and disrupt my body's ability to be able to burn fat or kill fat cells, the first thing I look at is the oils. You want an oil that is stable, that's unprocessed, and that hasn't been heated to high temperatures or exposed to high pressures. If you walk into my house and you come sit with me in the sauna and do the infrared light and roll around in the snow and then walk into the pantry, you'll find that we have macadamia nut oil, avocado oil, extra virgin olive oil, and a little bit of grass-fed butter, sometimes some ghee, right? These are all oils that are very stable at high temperatures or that carry with them some antioxidants like extra virgin olive oil, good green. I love being in Europe because the olive oil is real, right? A lot of the olive oil in the States, even at five-star Napa Valley restaurants, is cut half and half with canola oil to save money, right? Extra virgin olive oil, though, that's green and spicy and flaky. And, you know, my kids and I do olive oil tastings at home because we're a member of an olive oil club that sends us olive oil from different areas of the world. But this type of oil is actually great for you. The trick is not to avoid fat is to avoid the type of fats that cause inflammation. And if you guys want, if you're actually doing a good job controlling your vegetable oil intake, looking at your food labels, even asking at a restaurant, hey, could you cook this in butter? Could you cook this in extra virgin olive oil instead of canola oil? Which you'd be surprised at the number of restaurants that will very easily do that for you back in the kitchen. They'll take those Brussels sprouts that you love to get that they bring out nice and crispy to the table, but that are often cooked in canola oil. They've got extra virgin olive oil and butter back there. And you just tell them, hey, can you make those Brussels sprouts with a good healthy fat like a butter and olive oil instead? If you're making these type of changes to your diet, I'll tell you the number one thing that you can do to then convert these fat cells into other tissue or to kill them. This is a trick that kind of flies under the radar, but it's one of my secrets to staying lean year round. So what is that? Because I got a couple of questions here and Amrit Sandhu said, what's your favorite health hack? Mm. You know, we could probably lump this into that category, Amrit, as a really, really good health hack. So I'll tell you the hack, and then I'll tell you how you can up-level it, upgrade it, and take it to the next level. So the hack is this, and you've already been given a big, big clue in the first minute when Vishen was showing you that video. It's cold. Cold exposure in the absence of inflammation is one of the best ways to take fat cells and convert them into metabolically active tissue or to kill them. 
there's this myth going around that you can't kill fat cells, that you're stuck with whatever you have for the rest of your life and they're just waiting there like greedy little cells ready to soak up calories and get bigger. That's not true. You can kill them and you can convert them into other cells if inflammation is absent and then if you get cold exposure on a frequent basis. Heat works pretty well also, which is why I like to do the hot and the cold. I do that on a frequent basis. My kids do it too. We'll go and sit in the sauna, then we go jump in the cold pool, then we'll get in the hot tub. If it's snowy outside, we'll go roll around in the snow. Exposure to temperature fluctuations is fantastic for pushing these fat cells into a different state. In many cultures around the world, there's this belief that if we go out in the cold, we're gonna get sick. Grandma said you'd get sick if you didn't put your coat on, exactly. Right. Not true, but I'll give you one little tip. Oil of oregano. Oil of oregano is actually one of my secret weapons for immunity. So try that one out. Anyways, though, so cold exposure. How do you do that, especially if you live in a hot environment? Well, of course, cold showers are the glaringly obvious solution to this. If you live in an area like this where there's great cold water coming from the tap, you can simply stand in the cold water for two minutes at the beginning of the day and two minutes at the end of the day, which, by the way, at the end of the day, is fantastic for sleep because your body will not enter a state of deep sleep unless your body temperature is low. One of the best ways to get your body temperature low at the end of the day, aside from keeping your room temperature low and not sleeping with too many blankets, is to take a cold shower at some point towards the end of the day. Now, I will typically about once a week take that to the next level and go sit in a cold bath or go jump in a cold river or a lake or the sea or something else that kind of gets me to the state of shivering, the state of being even more cold. If you live in a hot environment, there are biohacks that you can use. There are, for example, companies that will sell gear that you can place on areas where you tend to have a lot of metabolically active fat tissue. Like there's a company called Cool Fat Burner and they make like these vests and waist belts that you can wear that you can actually pack ice into and keep your body cold while you're working, if you have a lot of fat to burn, it's actually a very, very good solution. Another thing that you can do was taught to me by a guy named Ray Cronice. He was first featured in Wired Magazine, runs a metabolic laboratory. He's a former NASA materials engineer, and he developed what he calls the shiver system. He came and spoke at an event I did in Spokane, Washington, and shared some of the stats on stage, and my mind was blown. He was burning 20 to 30 pounds of fat per month off of the clients that he was working with, with you know good healthy food, absence of inflammation, not exercise, but this low level physical activity throughout the day. And then at the beginning and at the end of the day, they would take a five minute shower and that five minute shower was 20 seconds of cold with 10 seconds of hot, 10 times through, right, for five minutes, that's it. Cold, hot, cold, hot, 10 times through. If you get bored, you can go to, for example, Amazon and grab yourself, I do this, a little underwater MP3 player, so you can listen to audiobooks or podcasts or whatever kind of gets you motivated as you're there hanging out in the shower, pet shop boys, whatever you like to listen to. (laughs) Anyways, though, the idea is that you do this, the beginning of the end of the day, you're getting temperature fluctuation, you're getting a nitric oxide release, you're shutting down inflammation, you're enhancing blood flow, you feel fantastic, it's great for your cognition as well. And then finally, the heat part of things that you saw us doing in the sauna, you develop heat shock proteins. Heat shock proteins are a special type of protein that you can build in your body with cold and hot exposure, and these make you more resilient to stress. 
not just physical stress, but also mental stress. If you do something that is, for example, a common practice here in Estonia and also in Finland, something like a sauna a few times a week where you're getting yourself nice and hot, you develop these heat shock proteins. And so if you use the cold in addition to the heat, you're kind of getting the best of both worlds. And this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body? your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.